0: Welcome to HBCU Tour 68, brought to you by ESPN's The Undefeated. This weekly podcast looks at life inside and outside of sports from the unique perspective of the Roden Fellows. handpicked students from six historically black colleges and universities. They're young, they're smart, and they are living one of the most unique experiences in American higher education. I'm Bill Roden, and here are this week's Roden Fellows.
1: I'm Simone Benton, Morgan State, in Baltimore, Maryland.
2: I'm Isaiah Smalls, and I attend Morehouse College in Atlanta, Georgia. I'm Donovan Dooley from North Carolina A&T in
0: Greensboro, North Carolina. Well, hello, everyone. Uh, <laughs> I'm recording from KMBR Studio in beautiful downtown San Francisco. And by the time you hear this uh, podcast, the first game of the NBA Finals will be underway. Uh, this is going to be the long-awaited rematch between. Uh, the Cavs, and the Warriors. And we have a really special uh, special guest, um, analyst and former NBA coach of the Golden State Warriors and former NBA player and longtime friend and longtime, longtime New Yorker the great Mark Jackson uh, joins us today to break it all down. Hey, hey Mark Jackson, man, thanks so much, man, and welcome to the show.
3: Well, thank you for having me. We go way back in and- it's an honor to be
0: on. Congratulations with your incredible success. Oh man, thanks so much. Just, okay. just, just for appointment. When Mark says go way, go way back, he really means way back. I think I first, uh, <laughs> I mean, way back. I think I first met Mark uh, probably in 1986, 87. Mark was uh, uh, playing. I think he was a high school All-American. He was playing with Bishop Lachlan High School, and he actually right. led Bishop Lachlan along with the Wheeler Brothers. To the New York State Championship, and uh, that's when I first uh, got to know Mark as a high school player, a great high school player. Then he went to St. John's and uh, starred at St. John's. Should have probably starred as a freshman. They may have beaten Georgetown, <laughs> but, but we won't go down. We won't go down that road. <laughs>
3: yeah, I'm, I'm not going to argue with. you. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: but then since then, uh, he played uh, a great NBA career. And one thing I say, Mick, and the students, uh, the fellows have just been dying to get you on because there's so much they want to ask you. But one of the things I will say is that, uh, there's been so much Mark, the same guy you see today, uh, is pretty much, uh, who he was and how just in terms of the leadership, uh, you know, just sort of just really being a very solid guy, solid character. Um, so anyway, man, again, it's really a pleasure to have you on, uh, really uh, so proud of you. Great, great career, uh,
1: well, Mark, before we get into your career, this is Simone from Morgan State. Um I wanted to ask you, what do you think of the NBA playoff playoffs, and um who do you like right now?
3: well i I think it's been you know very interesting, um, you know, disappointing when you think about the two best teams in Cleveland and Golden State pretty much ran through it. But at the same time i'm a I'm a fan, so I enjoyed it as a fan. I enjoyed witnessing greatness individually and collectively. And I think it, 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 all, you know, boils down to the two best teams with some, some tremendous, tremendous players, some future Hall of Famers and the one guy that's chasing, uh, the crown of being the best to ever do it. So I think it's going to be a incredible finals. I don't have a selection as far as who I think will win it all, but, uh, as a, as a fan, I'm going to have the best seat in the house and looking forward to how it all unfolds.
2: Hi, Mark. This is Isaiah from Morehouse. Uh, you started your NBA career as a Nick in 1987, ended as a Rocket in 2004. Seven years later, you made the transition to being a coach. How difficult was that transition?
3: Right, great question. And, and it wasn't difficult at all. And the reason why it wasn't difficult is because as a kid growing up in New York City, um, I had a crazy dream. I would watch the New York Knicks or listen to them. A favorite player was Earl of Pearl Monroe. And I would Listen. I'll watch the game and envision myself as a Nick player. I'd also envision myself as the announcer of the game, and I'd also envision myself as a coach, uh, developing schemes. So I had a dream to do all three, uh, and um, I'm, I'm incredibly mm-hmm. blessed to have lived a life where I've done all three. And um, it's an incredible dream. I had no business dreaming it, but uh, I thank God for the blessing to have have, have been able to accomplish it and the ride is continuing. So uh, it, it was a heck of an experience for me. And um, I, I, I just I, – I'm I'm grateful for the lives that, you know, I've come across and the relationships that I've
4: developed in all of these years. Hey, Mark, this is Donovan from A&T. Um, I just had a quick – will you talk about all the different facets of your life uh, in the game of basketball? I just had a quick question. Um, who was the toughest opponent you faced as a player? And then secondly – who was the toughest person you had to deal with as a coach? Well, the toughest players I I've, I've played,
3: you know, against
4: really the
3: all-time greats. Um, and it's tough to point out a guy. Michael Jordan was, you know, the best player I ever faced. You know, going against Magic Johnson as a six-nine point guard, the best point guard that's ever played the game, playing against Kobe, playing against Shaq, playing against Larry Bird. Uh, I don't think there's any one answer, but Michael Jordan, in my opinion, is the best player that's ever played. As far as coaches are concerned, um, I'm a guy that was able to coach for three years, and while I played, uh, I studied my coaches. I've had some, I've had uh, off the top of my head six or seven Hall of Fame coaches coach me. Um, that doesn't mean that all of them were great, um, but they did have something great about them. So I'm not going to sit there and lie to you and say I loved them all. I did my job. And what I did is watch them and learn what they did that was great and what they did not do. And I made sure I'd pick and choose what to put into my resume, into my repertoire to make me the best possible you know, coach I could be when the opportunity came. So I truly learned from all of them. The best coach I've ever had is Rick Pitino, who is still at the University of Louisville, but coached me my first two years in New York uh, as a member of the Knicks.
1: So uh, this is Simone from Morgan State. So when you coached the Warriors, uh, you had foresight to bring Harrison Barnes, Clay Thompson, and Draymond Green together. Some people thought you were crazy, but what did you see in them?
3: Well, I had great uh, leadership as far as the ownership, uh, management. Bob Myers, who is still you know currently the general manager of the Golden State Warriors, uh, the front office people, a guy by the name of Larry Riley, who actually was the general manager that had drafted Steph Curry before I even got there. So uh, a, a lot of credit to a lot of different people uh, that, that really changed the culture and made it to, 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 to a team today that, you know, is all of a sudden going to the NBA Finals for the third time. So um, it's just drafting great quality people that worked their tail off, that had great relationships, that was passionate, and truly, you know, wonderful competitors, and so they deserve a lot of credit. I was just along for
0: the ride. Hey, hey, hey Mike, let, Mike, let me let me ask you something. Uh, two things. I want to go back to something you said, but uh, you, you were talking about some of the toughest players that you uh, were up against. And my thought was, has, has I mean, there's been this big debate, LeBron or Michael, and some people are saying that, particularly if LeBron leads Cleveland to another championship, he will have eclipsed Jordan as one of the, as the greatest of all time. I mean you 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 and and and, and Gundy and my you, you, you had a front row seat. What do you think about about that? I mean has LeBron eclipsed Jordan, do you think?
3: Boy, you and your crew should do the uh the, the pre game press conference with I mean you guys you guys have some incredible tough questions. You're putting pressure on me, man. I'm in a lobby sweat right now.
5: Well <laughs> I, I,
3: I, I will say this, I, I will say this. Um when I played against Michael Jordan, um, I witnessed him single-handedly early on beat uh, the New York Knicks team that I was on. When the other guys on the team wasn't quite ready, I, I, I made a determination in my mind that I would never see another basketball player anywhere near his greatness. And then I watched Kobe Bryant uh, as a competitor against him, and. He became so great to the point where I said if we were choosing sides and you took Michael Jordan, I wouldn't be mad. I'd take Kobe Bryant, and we can pick from there. Um When I look at LeBron James, he is an incredible, incredible basketball player that truly is uh climbing the charts as far as all-time great. Today, I don't put him ahead of Michael Jordan, but I, I, I think he will make a case when it's all said and done. He'll be the leading scorer in the history of the game. He'll be a top-five assist man in the history of the game. He'll be, you know, right now he's a four-time MVP. He's a he's a champ in MVP finals and should have been MVP finals of the finals when they lost. But mm-hmm. it's incredible when you witness what he's done. And I would not be shocked at all if he leaves the game as the best to ever do it.
2: Hi, Mark. This is uh, Isaiah again. Uh, you transitioned from being a coach to an analyst ESPN in 2014, how was it to go from coaching the Warriors to calling their games? Did it used to bother you when you first started calling their games?
3: <clears throat> and the surprising thing is people always said, why Why would ESPN keep on making Mark Jackson do Warrior games? Well, I humbly submit I'm part of the number one team on ESPN ABC. If you don't want me to do Warrior games, then they shouldn't be good. If they're going to be good, <laughs> they're going to be on the primetime <laughs> right. slot then I'm going to be one of the guys calling the game. It's a blessing for yeah. me, and I, I'm, I'm thankful that I'm continuing to be relevant. It's easy for me because if you told me um, that I was going to coach a team for three years, I was going to be part of a group that changed the culture, and this team would be going to the finals for the third time and have a guy that would be a two-time MVP, would have a bunch of guys that are making an incredible amount of money that was question marks coming into this league, and I'm going to be sitting on the sideline calling the games. I look at you and say, I'm winning. That kid that was in the corner in, in Brooklyn, New York, dreaming to have this opportunity. I'm winning. There's no sense in me to be uh, upset or or mad. No. The, the thing I will tell you is, you know, it's it's emotional because I'm watching guys that uh, like like my kids. I'm watching them succeed. So it's emotional as far as I'm proud of them. I mean, I'm not gonna sit there and tell you I want them to win or I want them to lose. It doesn't matter. It's a game that I'm calling, but I'm proud of these guys because I watched them put the time in, and I watched them develop. More importantly, you know, okay, we know they've developed as basketball players and how great they are, but I watch them develop as, you know, as as men, which is more important than
4: to, to to me. And I said that from day one. Right. Mark, this is Donovan from A&T. Um, I have a, I have a question for you, but I want to follow up with something you said there. You talked about Golden State and the players that you helped draft as well as Steph Curry changing the culture of basketball. Um, do you feel like the changing the culture of basketball from more of a driving, get to the cup type of game to a just to a three point fast, do you think that's helped the game or hurt the game and why? Well, I think it's helped the game for
3: people that can shoot. <laughs> I think if you <laughs> if you can't shoot it it it's hurt the game. There's no sense in me trying to copy what the Warriors are doing if I'm another team and I don't have great shooting, then it's a recipe for disaster. So overall, right. even if I – like I said a couple of years ago, I'm watching these AAU games and these youth league games and the kids come into the gym and the first thing they do is, you know, hoist up a three-point shot and shoot air balls and they continue to do it. So it hurts the game right. to a certain extent. But if you have a gift of shooting the basketball and you work on your craft and you continue to get better – Okay, then let's capitalize on it. But overall, I think you have to play to your strengths. You know, if I'm the New Orleans Pelicans and I have Anthony Davis and DeMarcus Cousins, I'm not just going to be jacking up threes. I'm going to make you
4: defend two of the best big men in the world. Right. And my second question is, as a former Nick, how do you feel about Phil Jackson? Do you feel like he's ruining the team? Or how do you feel about his organizational style and his management style? Well, you guys are tough. If,
5: if, I, if, if,
4: if, if, if I'm man enough to say that Phil Jackson is
3: one of the all-time greatest coaches in the history of sports, there's no doubt about that. If I can give him credit with saying that, then out of the same mouth, I have to be able to say he's been a failure as president of the New York Knicks. Uh, what they've done since right. he's been there has been a disappointment. So if I can give him props on one end and allow the data and, and, and the information to speak volumes, I have to do the same exact thing when it doesn't work in his favor.
2: Uh, This is Isaiah again from Morehouse. Uh, One of the biggest storylines this postseason centers around who is the league's greatest point guard. As a former point guard yourself, what do you value when assessing point guards and who is in your top five?
3: Um, I don't know who's in my top five. Certainly the the usual suspects in Westbrook and and, uh, Kyrie Irving and Steph Curry and James Harden and John Wall, Isaiah Thomas. Uh, this, this is the this is a great time as far as point guards in the NBA is concerned. It really, is, you know, really is fun to watch. And uh, I'm a guy that was a pass-first point guard, uh, so so I, I, you know, love a pass-first guard. But I'm not blind to say that the effectiveness of guys that can shoot and score the basketball certainly enhances the position. So. I love what James Harden does. I love what Russell Westbrook does. I love what Steph Curry and Kyrie Irving does. You know, if you ask Steph Curry or Kyrie Irving or James Harden to do what I did, it'd be a crime the same way that if you asked me to, you know, jack up three-pointers all game, I'd be out of the league. So
4: it's a fun time, and I really
3: I really enjoy watching those guys. Hey,
4: Mark, this is uh, Donovan from A&T. Uh, I just have one quick question. You, you, I know you've heard about what Draymond's comments were about Clay uh, Thompson not being on an All NBA team. I just wanted to kind of get your thoughts on that, and uh, what do you feel? How you feel about All NBA teams? Do you feel like they got it right with the selections? Uh, I think it's it's
3: really too close to call. When you look at Clay Thompson, Gordon Haywood, when you look at Paul George, uh, it's it's tough to fill out you know a list of. All NBA, You get 15 guys, and there's going to be some guys left off. You look at Mike Conley and the year he had, or Marcus O, the year that he had, some guys are going to be left off. So I understand what Draymond Green is saying, and a case can be made for Clay Thompson. At the same time, who do you want to take off? When you look at the guards, uh, Damon Lillard had a great year. When you look at the guards, uh, Isaiah Thomas was an MVP candidate. John Wall was an MVP candidate. Who do you want to take off to create a space? Klay Thompson is an incredible basketball player who's had an incredible start to his career, and he's going to be around for a long time to come. But at the end of the day, some guys that deserve to be on the All-NBA team was going to be left off, and unfortunately, Klay was one of them. All
0: right. All right. Hey, hey, Mark, I, I, just, I want to switch gears a little bit, but I want to go back to one thing so really early on about uh, young players and understanding the business of the game a little better. And, and I, 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 the first, when you said that, the first name that came to my mind was Levar Ball. Um, and I was wondering, what do you think of his approach to business? Personally, I'm for anybody who wants to get off the plantation. <laughs> you know, who, who wants? You know what I'm saying? Who, who wants to? Why should I give Nike and Adidas all the money? Why should I let UCLA exploit my kid? You know, I'm going to do it all. But I'm just you. You're in the business. Now you've seen it. You see AAU. Now you're raising a son who's getting ready to come into business. You see young people be more. Look at you know. Look at the NBA as a as a billion dollar business it is. In that context, what do you think of LeVar Ball? Is he does he have a kind of right or do you think he's got it wrong? Well,
3: I will say this: college college sports have been exploiting you know kids forever, um, and I, I've always believed that even when I was one of them. And St. John's did things the right way. I didn't get anything illegal, but I believe that college sports—they're uh, exploiting kids, uh, and it's unfortunate. Uh, Laval Ball is doing the right thing to try to uh, turn this thing into a business. Now, is he going about it the right way? I think he's putting this kid in a tough position at times. Um, I got nothing to respect for him in the way he's raised his his three boys and how he's been as far as the family is concerned. Um, I just think he's putting a lot of pressure on his son and, 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 and pressure that as a, as a young kid coming into the NBA, you don't really need, he's going to be fine and hopefully for them, to make a lot of money. I think at the end of the day, he will look back and wish he did some things differently.
0: Mm-hmm. Hey, Mark, this has been tremendous, man. Before we, before we let you go, uh, Isaiah Donovan, uh want to make and, and Simone want to make their NBA predictions you know they they want to impress you with their predictions
1: well I well it's just Simone I'll go first I'm gonna go with the Warriors I'm just gonna go with the Warriors because I've just never been a Cavs fan so that's my prediction
2: I'm gonna have to say uh this is Isaiah from where else I'm gonna have to say Cavs in seven. I think you know LeBron has too much on the line this year so I I think he's gonna get it done <clears throat> No, I'm going to go with – Somebody's going to be
4: right. Go ahead. Yeah, no, okay. Uh, right. this, this is Donovan. This is Donovan from a and ti I'm going to go with the Warriors in seven. I think Kevin Durant's going to make the difference. I think there's just too much firepower. Even with the Cavs bench, uh, them adding players, I think the all-star power of KD is going to be too much. I got the Warriors in seven.
1: Well, I'm glad Donovan knows the truth, so. <laughs> <laughs> this,
0: what, do you, what do you think, Marty? Do, do you make predictions or, or – as as a, as a person in the media, uh, do you – I've always told people, who do you like? They say, well, I'm a mercenary sports writer. I like the story, you know. Well,
4: uh,
3: <laughs> I, 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 I normally make predictions, but um, this is this is tough, and um, I'm not sure who's going to win. I think it's going to be a great series. I think it's going to be an all-time great series when you think about the players that will be on the floor. So it's going to be exciting.
0: Well, listen, I, I guess it's been the great Mark Jackson, uh, extraordinary uh, – a commentator, and I agree. I think the best play-by-play team on 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 the network. Uh, you know, was a great ball player, even greater person, uh, raising four great kids. Mark, thanks so much, man. Wish you uh, the best of luck. No telling where. Do, do you miss coaching? By the way, I meant to ask you that. Do you want to get back into it, or are you done?
3: Well, I'm a guy that you know truly uh, trusts God. So if it's in His will for me to be a coach again. Yeah. Uh, I look forward to it. If not, I'll, I'll be at peace. So, uh, it's 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 something that I enjoy impacting lives and being around guys firsthand. Uh, right. But it'll play itself out.
0: Well, that means stay tuned. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> hey, hey, Mark, thank yeah. thanks That's so much, man.
3: job. I really appreciate the opportunity to, to join you.
0: Oh, uh, pleasure, pleasure, well, man. Good thanks luck tomorrow. in Las Vegas.
3: Thank you. Thanks. So much. Absolutely. Thanks, thanks again, Bill. Good. All right. Hey, to hey, you thank guys. you
0: very thank much, man. You. Take care of yourself. God bless. Okay. All righty. Bye. All right. Up next, we'll talk about the anniversary of Muhammad Ali's death with long-form feature writer and senior writer for ESPN Tom Janot. We'll be back after a quick break. Welcome back to HBC 468. If you're just now joining us, I'm Bill Roden, and I'm here with Three of the rodent fellows: Simone Benson from Morgan State College, the best in the world, because I went there; Isaiah Smalls from Morehouse, and Donovan Dooley from Morgan's arch rival, North Carolina A&T. Uh, I can't, I can't, I can't believe it, but it's already been wow, it's been a year since the great Muhammad Ali uh, passed away. Uh, he gracefully bowed out of his fight with respiratory complications at the age of 74 in Phoenix, Arizona. On June 3rd, 2016, he left behind a wife, three ex-wives, nine children, and countless millions of fans. ESPN senior writer Tom Junot joins us today to talk about Ali's death and what happened. He was the author of uh, an incredible, incredible story dot uh, ESPN.com. He's going to talk about. Hey, Tom, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. No oh, man, it's our, it's our pleasure. It's our pleasure. You know, before we begin, Tom, um, I'd just like to hear from the fellows briefly about how each of them learned about Ali. I mean, his last fight was in 1981, which is at least 10 years before any of you guys were born. Um, just, just final thoughts, Simone and Isaiah Donovan.
1: Um, so for me, this is Simone from Morgan state in Baltimore, um, for me, I heard about him because I used to sit with my father. He's a huge boxing fan and he used to watch his old fights and just knowing, um, mom Ali's legacy in general, just knowing that, you know, hearing about him and understanding his personality and, you know, I'm outspoken. So I kind of bonded with him being outspoken and a little bit of a trash talker. So, um, that's definitely how I've heard about him and yeah, I would say
2: uh yeah, this is Isaiah from Morehouse College uh I actually first heard about him when I was younger I had a placemat of you know uh black figures in history and so Muhammad Ali was one of them and so I just from a very young age I had always I had always seen that and I when I grew, grew older I tried to do some research and watched some of his fights and I just saw that he had just such an amazing self confidence and you know he was the greatest boxer that I'd seen with my eyes you know just from looking at videos and, I tried to embody that you know that's that same self confidence in everything I do. Yeah, this is Donovan
4: from North Carolina A and T. Um, basically, like my first interaction of hearing about Ali was when I was having a conversation with my dad about who the greatest of all time was, and I kept referring to is Michael Jordan the greatest of all time? Is this is this person the greatest of all time? Is that person the greatest of all, of all time? And then he came up and he told me, "Do you not know about Muhammad Ali?" And I was really young at the time. I was like, "Who's Muhammad Ali?" And from that point on, I've been fascinated with the man. Doing research about him, just even when I'm older now, just doing research about his works that he did in the in the community for the African American community, for the Islamic community, uh, his his stands that he took. And it's just very, just an incredible man that I didn't know about when I was younger, but have learned to know a lot about.
0: Hey, hey Donovan says he's younger. I mean, older time. He's like what 19, Donovan? <laughs>
4: Yeah, 19, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hey, Tom,
0: Tom you've written, a, a written an incredible, incredible story about the last days of uh, Ali's life and the days that follow, I mean, from cleaning and embalming the body to dealing with the politics at the funeral to Ali's wife visiting the grave a year later. What, what attracted you to the story, Tom? And uh, were, were you always an Ali fan?
2: Yeah,
5: um, unlike... Uh my 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 you know the guests on on this show um and more like you Bill uh I I was uh born um at a time when I could uh be you know grow up in the thick of Ali's career um I was 16 when he mm-hmm. beat George Foreman and if anybody right now asks me you know of all the uh sporting moments that I've seen what was the one that had the most effect on me uh, it was absolutely Alley beating Foreman because at the time, nobody thought that Allie beat, could beat Foreman. And I remember, watch, I watched that fight on closed circuit at Nassau Coliseum in, uh, mm. in Long Island, and I was there with my brother and watching him settle into the ropes and screaming, no, no, get off. You know, <laughs> he, was, he had kept on saying that he was going to dance his way through that thing, and all of a sudden he's on the ropes and, Foreman is sitting there swinging and then and then you realize that he is oh my god, he's laying a trap mm. and for a for a sixteen year old kid to to realize that that the mind could have that kind of uh, effect in a battle of bodies was was really one of the was one of the great moments of you know my life as a spectator of sporting events and and you know certainly the most powerful moment that um you know will stay with me and has stayed with me forever um i when um i first came to ESPN um one of the first stories because that was a year ago um i i um had left esquire magazine after 20 years and when i came to ESPN one of the first stories that I proposed was on Ali. Um, He was at that time still alive, but um, I wanted to do a story of his last days because I had the feeling that his last days um, would reflect deeply his life as a Muslim. And I was of the belief that... um, that that was a story that needed to be written, was a story of, of Muhammad Ali as a Muslim because of, you know, what was going on politically um, at the time. Shortly um, after I, you know, sort of, you know, agreed to come to ESPN was when he died. And I didn't, you know, know what was going to become of my plans, but I, I called an imam um, in Los Angeles who was a friend of mine the day after he died. And I asked, you know, what, what happens next? And, uh, over the next hour, he described to me, um, the body washing process. And as soon as I heard all that, I knew that I had to write that story, the story of what happened to Ali from the moment he died to the
2: moment he was buried. Uh, hi, Tom, this is uh, Isaiah from Morehouse, uh, The scenes you described are incredible, from Ali's last breath to, you know, the cleaning of the body, to the Turkish president's arrival, to something as simple as his casket, you know. Were were you able to attend his funeral, and how did you achieve this type of access?
4: Um,
5: I was not able to attend his funeral. I wasn't even uh, working for ESPN, you know, technically or formally um, at that time. You know, I watched watched some of it on TV. I was, you know, I was just a, a person at home watching the coverage. But having talked to the imam in Los Angeles, I knew that this is what I wanted to do. And once I started with ESPN and started writing a few stories, you know, I decided to go out to um, basically just to, to Louisville and just start asking questions. And you know, it was a it was a really interesting process because really, um, you know, I drove up to Louisville from from Atlanta. And then I the, my, really the only thing that I knew was that his uh, gravestone came from an old business in downtown Louisville called Muldoon Monuments, and I walked into there from the street. You know, it was a it was a it's a, a, a gravestone um, dealer, and um, I wound up talking uh, to a guy um, named Colin McBroom, and he said that he had he had designed and you know basically done all the work on Ali's tombstone. And the thing that he said that interested me at that moment was that he had been working on it for years, that Lonnie Ali had come in um, years before and commissioned him to do the tombstone and that he had begun designing it then. And he had actually designed laid out on his table, but it was secret the whole time. He had to sign a non-disclosure agreement that you know basically bound him to secrecy that he was doing this because nobody nobody um, could talk of the fact that they were you know you know some time ago now uh, planning Ali's funeral and so he had this design on his desk of Ali's tombstone but he could never put the name Ali on it and you know I listened to him talk um, for an hour and a half about that process and was mesmerized. And, you know, as soon as I walked out of there, I knew I had a story. And that's essentially what happened there was what happened with the story from beginning to end. I just would – I would walk up to somebody and I'd say, you know, can you tell me what you did the week that Muhammad Ali died or what you did to help bury Muhammad Ali? And, you know, an hour and a half later, um, I would would go home or two hours later – I would end the interview. It was just a it was just a remarkable process from beginning to end. I can't tell you how many times I got chills talking to people.
4: Wow. Well, this is Donovan from A and T from North Carolina A and T. Um I just hey, have Donovan. a quick question. What was what was the most challenging and most gratifying part about writing the story? And can you take me a little deeper into how you developed your story arc?
5: Well sure. Um I mean the the most gratifying was I guess last night <laughs> when I sent it when I sent it off and, and it was done. But um right. but but also but also um I have to say that there was a there was one interview that I felt that I needed or actually two interviews that I felt that I needed the whole time. Um, and one was with the body washer um, because that was the interview that originally gave me the impetus to write the story. I knew that I wanted that that's that part of the puzzle. I knew that I wanted wow. to to get that kind of 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 intimacy um, with with Muhammad Ali, you know, in 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 death. And um, and so I knew that when. I interviewed uh, Ahmad ewais, who was the, the body washer in Tempe, Tempe, Arizona. I knew I had the story. Um, I did not know that I'd be able to interview Lonnie Ali. I wasn't sure about that. She came in at the very end. And um, I didn't know how important that Lonnie was going to be to the story, um, but she – Gave me the emotional arc of the story. As it turned out, I mean, I I was I was halfway through writing the story when I interviewed Lonnie, but the 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 depth of emotion that she provided to the story was yeah, absolutely to the story. I don't know how I would have written it without, to be honest with thinking, you know, looking back on it. Um, but as far as as far as developing the arc of the story, you know, it was you know it was a you know, it was a classic process, you know, as a writer, I was, you know, stepping all over my own seat as a writer. When I was going through my first draft, I had written, I don't know, two or 3,000 words. And I, you know, I called my, I called my editor, I called Eric Neal at ESPN. And I was like, you know, man, you know, I've, I've done, you know, countless hours of, of interviewing for this story. And I can't tell you how many times I got Chills doing those interviews, but I've written three thousand words, and there's no chills to be had in this story. I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not delivering. And you know, Eric, you know, it was just like, you know, he's he's a really laid back character and a, a great editor. And he was like, well, just go with the chills, and that's what I did. You know, I mean, <laughs> I I, be- I began I began just writing those things that had moved me so deeply and the um the first thing that i wrote was um you know imam um Zaid Shakir here um spontaneously singing the um the muslim call to prayer as ali was dying um when i had interviewed him he told me that that had given me chills it gives me chills right now as i'm talking to you and um, so that was the first thing I wrote, and then I I added actually a sort of a preamble to that once I spoke to Lonnie because I wanted to get Lonnie into the story as soon as possible. But I just kept on following um, the things that um, had really most deeply affected me in the course of my reporting, and just wrote them all. Essentially, I, there wasn't a lot of complexity to um, the arc of the story. I just I just followed uh, followed the chills essentially.
1: So um, I wanted to ask this is Simone from Morgan State. Um, I wanted to ask you about you mentioned Lonnie, which is uh, Ali's wife that she, you know, she came in at the end. And, you know, you really, really, you know, were surprised. You really were surprised about what you, you know, were able what she was talking about and just her in general. I want to ask you, how was it working with Lonnie? And um, did she surprise you in any way?
5: Yeah, she surprised me from the very beginning because I had formed an opinion on about her that was just sort of a a reading of her time with him. I mean, she had she had been a a caregiver to him before she married him, and you know, he was you know already um, you know had in the grip of Parkinson's when when they were married. So it was my assumption that she sort of reconciled herself to becoming his widow at the same time as she became his wife. It was just sort of my reading of the situation, my take of the situation. And I I had thought because that she'd been planning the funeral for so long that she'd been preparing for his death for an equal amount of time but that's not the way it was i mean she from the beginning of our our conversation just said that she was not prepared at all that she was in shock when he died that he um was actually you know she saw him in to be in good health you know considering considering that he you know had you know serious complications of parkinson's yeah. disease and that he and that really that he what happened was is that he got a cold and that when he um went into the hospital he you know she had you know she took him there as a precaution and that you know he was um dead within days and that was a, just a complete shock to her and and i guess and that was the other thing i i had i had always thought that she was his caregiver from beginning to end, that you know that she took care of him, and that was sort of the defining aspect of of her role in the marriage. And she made what a- made you
1: assume, what made you what, what looked directly before you went into it, because um, I know you said that lot. You know when she came, she came into it later. Um, what made you actually think that? You know, just having that assumption in general of you know.
5: Well, it was just my it was my assumption. You know, a lot of people had written about Lonnie as as the person who basically had had saved Muhammad Ali. You know, had saved the 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 enterprise known as Muhammad Ali. That when that when um, you know he had he was you know not particularly healthy in any way, including financially. When they were married, and that, and that basically that she restored him in in, in very many ways. as she operated as his as his protector, and gatekeeper, and caregiver. So you know these were all just so you know knowing some of that or hearing some of that, you know my assumptions that was that those were her roles, and it was just it was really based on nothing more than just you know. Uh, An educated guess on my part, but you know, but what you know one of the best things that can happen to you as a journalist is to be proven wrong and I was proven wrong when I when I when I met Lonnie. She um, was still in shock over losing him. She was still um, desperately sad over losing him. She wept copiously and freely during our interview, and she made it clear to me um, in very, very passionate and beautiful ways that what he was to her um, all along was um, a husband and that she was his wife. And, you know, that was the emotional backbone that my reporting was missing until I met her.
2: This is uh, Isaiah from Morehouse. Uh, just switching gears a little bit, you've had a very accomplished writing career, and the subjects of your pieces have varied from, you know, doctors who perform abortions to sexual predators to now world-famous boxer activists. Um, how do you go about choosing your stories?
5: Um, you know, I, I just, I, I go by by instincts. I, you know, I really kind of go by feel. What are the things that are... Um, you know, affect me emotionally. And the things that, you know, often affect me emotionally are are, are stories that have sort of, um, the A, get to something elemental, that are, you know, um, life and death, like this story or the story that I wrote for Esquire, you know, The Falling Man, or the story that I wrote for GQ, you know, The Abortionist. Those are all, you know, those are all about life and death. And because they were about life and death, you know there was a there was a, a you know almost a a barrier around them that had to be um, breached in order to to get the story and you know when I was first writing the story of the falling man I mean people were I couldn't believe that I was writing a story about people um, who had you know jumped from the um, the World Trade Center on nine eleven that that seemed to be because that was a taboo subject at the time. And that seemed to be, you know, a, a violation of these people. Um, you know, I think that I, that the story, you know, proved them wrong. And, you know, and the story, you know, with Ali, I mean, his – I don't think that the story of his death has been told yet. And I think it's, you know, it's been told here. Um, and, I, I, you know, I hope that I, I, I give it the same sort of um, respect and almost um, you know, not, not just respect, but sort of um, acknowledgement that it's that there's like like a sacredness at the heart of the material. I hope that that is you know is is in this piece.
2: Uh, just just taking something from uh, what you just said, how are you um, able to pry such you know specific emotions? From just brief interactions uh, with Ali, so for example, I know you were talking about this security team hired to um, just watch over the body. You, you wrote something that was very powerful. Uh, they encounter uh, Ali dead, yet even with his life uh, fled, his power presi- persists as if it's put uh, uh, as it's part of the atmosphere around his body. It's pa- and it's. I really like that line because it's powerful because it it speaks to just how larger than life Ali really was, even in his passing. So. Again, you know, how are you able to pr- pry such specific emotions just from brief interactions? Well, I
5: was I was um hoping, you know, with the story that the that the story of his death would be sort of a measure of his life, you know, like how big his life was that he was still, you know, affecting uh people even in death. And that's 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 what it turned out to be. I mean, the interviews in this story um they were gifts. I mean, they really were. Right. Um, they were like, like little parcels of grace. Um, because I didn't have to do much. All I had to do was, was you know, basically ask people, tell me, tell me about your involvement with Muhammad Ali, the week that he died, mm-hmm. or tell me, tell me your role in his burial. And I just, I would just kind of. Sit there and and listen and and these people would tell me you know their experiences and not just like what they did but how they felt and how it affected them because they were all affected and that was I mean that that is the heart of this story is that you know that is that people from all walks of life you know walked into you know the proximity of, of Muhammad Ali after he died and were moved in, you know, very, very um, specific and powerful ways. And they wanted to tell me that story. I mean, everybody that I spoke to, this, you know, that wasn't, this was not a story where, where I had to, you know, um, get something out of these people. They, they handed it to me. And it was, um, it was, you know, really one of the great experiences I've had as a journalist.
4: Uh, Mr. Genoa, this is Donovan Dooley from North Carolina A&T. Uh, just one last question: um, What do you as your as your audience reads your story? What do you think is the biggest and most significant thing that your audience should take from your story? That's a great question. Um, you know,
5: to me, the 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 preciousness of this of this one man's life um is the thing and, and how and how deaf and how death revealed that. I mean, I don't know if I've written too many other stories where I've gotten choked up writing them. And but this was a story where I got I got choked up writing some of those sections. The section where they check here spontaneously Recites the call to prayer as Muhammad Ali is dying i mean I, I can't to this day read that without becoming emotional. I can't read the the part about Zayd Shakir washing his body and calling his assistants over and saying, Look you know at his face you know right right when he's about to apply the perfume i mean i'm I'm talking to you right now and getting emotional so so there's there's an intimacy to the story that, you know, I hope cuts through what people think that they know about uh, Muhammad Ali. I mean, everybody's, you know, heard an awful lot about Muhammad Ali since he died. But this is a story that I hope, you know, um, reveals, you know,
4: just how precious this life was. All right. That's very interesting that you say that. I just have one quick follow-up in your opinion. How do you feel that we should mark his anniversary of his death? How do you feel that like we should celebrate Ali?
5: Well, I mean, you know, I, I think that I think that the. I mean, why was why was he so? Why is his presence so powerful? Is the question is the question that? You know, um, I think that we should all ask ourselves. You know, and I and I, I hope that this story sort of provides. You know a, a few of those answers, but you know, I guess my question is is, you know would would he have been the man he was if he stayed Cassius Clay? Um, my My feeling is that he wouldn't have been. My feeling is that he would have been a great sports hero and a sports idol, but he wouldn't have been a transcendent sports hero. And he wouldn't have been a transcendent American. But he was a guy who was there to answer the call virtually every time he was called. And so, you know, when he – I say in the story, you know, when he was called upon to fight, he fought. When he was called upon to make peace, he made peace. And when he was called upon to become Muhammad Ali, he changed his name from Cassius Clay, and he became Muhammad Ali and that you know to me is is the is the overriding message of of his life i know that you know a lot of people look at you know what he did um you know the people he helped and the his you know kind of ecumenical message in the last you know 20 years 30 years of his life but the fact that he was always sort of you know, willing to answer the call or answer the bell, if you will, is, is the, is the thing that, that is to me, the source of his power and the thing that should be, you know, contemplated and kind of meditated on, uh, as, as we come to the anniversary of his death.
1: Well, well, Tom, we loved your piece and it was absolutely riveting. And we just thank you so much for being on the show again. Thank and
5: you I, for, thank you guys for reading it and, and for asking such great questions and, and you know, just talking about it with me. It was, uh, it was yeah, quite an experience to report and write it. And it's been a, a great experience talking to you guys.
0: Our guest has been, uh, the great, uh, Tom, you who's written a phenomenal piece on Muhammad Ali. And, um, uh, we're going to, I'm sure we're going to come back with him, but, uh, we're going to, um, uh, let him go now. And Tom, thanks so much for your time, man. This is an incredible job, an incredible story. We, we, uh, look forward to having you back on and just talk about the reaction.
5: Okay, that sounds wonderful. Thanks, guys.
1: All right, thank
0: you. Thank
5: you. Thank you. 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 Okay, bye now. All right, take care, Tom. Okay, bye. All
0: right. Uh, Now, before we close out the show, I'm going to turn it over to the fellows uh, to leave you with a few thoughts to consider.
1: The Trump administration's recently released budget proposal has created an uproar among college students around the country. This proposal will cut federal education spending by astonishing 13.5 percent. The administration claims it will maintain the budget for minority schools and won't increase spending on HBCUs after promising it will do so during the well-publicized meeting with the HBCU president earlier this year. The proposal also affects federal grants and work-study programs, which is a huge blow to HBCU students such as myself. We rely heavily on these programs to fund our education. Thousands of Americans are protesting this budget, which has yet to be approved, but it will take more than protests to save the day. So consider this. For the hundreds of thousands of those who attend HBCUs, It's time to step up and fill the gaps with financial contributions.
2: Following the Warriors' Game 3 win against the Spurs, Kevin Durant was asked about the lopsided victories that have come to define the 2017 NBA playoffs. His response? If you don't like it, don't watch it. Really? Don't watch it? Although Durant did eventually apologize for his comments, they still sting. Fans watch the NBA for the competition. The NBA is home to the best basketball players in the world, and we love seeing them go head-to-head, night in, night out. This postseason has lacked any competitiveness. Why? Watching Steph, Clay, and KD massacre the likes of Patty Mills and Joel Anthony is terrible for the NBA. The Warriors have yet to be tested all postseason, and viewership has suffered as a result. Let's hope these NBA playoffs will provide fans a nice change of pace.
4: The state of North Carolina finally came to its senses, and arguably the greatest player of all time will finally get to host an All-Star weekend. The NBA announced on Wednesday that the coveted All-Star weekend will return to Charlotte, North Carolina after a 28-year hiatus. The last time the game was held there, Hornets owner Michael Jordan won the All-Star game MVP. That's a pretty long time. Charlotte was originally scheduled to host a multi-million dollar event in February 2017, but the NBA quickly changed its mind after the passing of North Carolina's House Bill 2 law, which the league and other organizations denounced as discriminatory against LGBT individuals. The NBA is finally coming back after new Governor Roy Cooper repealed the law that cost the state nearly hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue. He replaced it with a compromise bill that bans local governments from passing anti-discrimination ordinances for three years. It is nice to see that the state of North Carolina has finally acknowledged its mistake of enacting a bill that was idiotic, insensitive, and impossible to truly enforce. I'm glad the NBA could help give the state a social justice wake-up call.
0: Last February, students at Bowie State University celebrated as a men's basketball team won the CIAA tournament. Three months later, the Bowie State community is mourning the horrific death of one of its own. Lieutenant Richard Collins III was stabbed to death by a white University of Maryland student while visiting friends on the College Park campus. The unprovoked attack is being investigated as a hate crime. This is the latest instance of the black community being under siege as righteousness is under attack. These are challenging times. We live in a climate that seems to nurture hatred and fear, where some police officers and some citizens feel they can take a black life with impunity. You can fool yourself into believing that the death of a young black man, a commissioned officer in the United States Army, has nothing to do with you. But consider this. A hate crime against one is a hate crime against all. Unchecked, unchallenged racism is a beast, that will eventually destroy everything in his path. Thanks for listening to HBCU 468. This show is produced by Aaron Matthewson. Tony Chow and Jorge Estrada are in the control room. Special thanks to David Cummings. Get all of the HBCU 468 podcasts, as well as All Day, What Are Those?, and Morning Roast by subscribing to The Undefeated on the Listen tab of the ESPN app. Join us next week for another HBCU podcast, and don't forget to make The Undefeated your go-to site for a soulful look at sports and entertainment. Have a great week, everyone.